There's a great day coming, a great day coming, there's a great day coming by and by, when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? We don't sing that song much anymore. In fact, I had to look in I don't know how many hymn books before I could find a copy of that hymn that used to be commonly sung in churches across America. Perhaps we are embarrassed to talk about the future judgment. While I was looking, I found this hymn on the judgment day that I'd never seen before. It says, Sinners, take the friendly warning. Soon that awful day shall break, and the trumpet with its dawning all the slumbering millions wake. See assembled every nation, lofty cities, temples, towers, Wrapped in dreadful conflagration, earth and sea the flame devours. Yes, who to the, or ye rather, who to the world dissemble while you practice deeds of night. Sinners, now behold and tremble, all your crimes are brought to light. Lost in ease or carnal pleasure, sporting on the burning brink. Now you say you have no leisure, you can find no time to think. Ye who now conviction stifling, waste your time, the lost deplore. Hear the angel, cease your trifling, time, he cries, shall be no more. Pause and hear the voice of reason, catch the moments as they fly. You who lose the present season, you must all find time to die. It's a serious matter, the judgment day. It is a truth that is taught to us in the Word of God and an important one. In fact, it may be the most important truth, or at least one of the most important truths that is found in all the Word of God. And therefore, it ought to be proclaimed by the people of God, and we will proclaim it, If we love the souls of men more than we fear the scoffing and scorn of the world. And Peter deals with this subject in our text for today in 1 Peter 4, 5, and 6. When he tells us there is a day of judgment coming of which no sinner can escape. He says in verse 5, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. In verse 5, we see the judgment that sinners must face. And in verse 6, we see the only way to be ready. And there are five facts about this judgment that sinners must face that are revealed to us in verse 5. It is, number one, a judgment that is not influenced by human opinion. When we read in verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is, of course, a connection between the verses that go before, a very clear connection. The they of verse 5, the they that begins verse 5, they will give an account to him, takes us back, first of all, to the they in verse 4, where we read, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. 
And that takes us back to the word Gentiles in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in the lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking power, parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they, that is the Gentiles, those who don't know God, who are not the people of God, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, but, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so what we learn is that this future day of judgment is not influenced by human opinion. Peter makes reference to these people who scoff at the laws of God and scoff at the people of God who are trying to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Here you are refusing to participate in their drunkenness and their sexual immorality and in their false worship, and they are making fun of you. They think it's strange that you are this way. They think you're weird. They're speaking evil of you. Their opinion is that there is no truth to these things that you say regarding a holy God and a day of judgment and that we'd better give ourselves to God and be cleansed by the blood of Christ and live our lives pleasing to Him. They scoff at all of that. Their opinion is that is of no substance whatsoever. It's at best a myth and it ought not to be paid attention to, but in spite of their opinion, the day of judgment is coming and God will judge them regardless of what they thought about His Word during their lifetime. The only opinion that really matters is God's. And we, all of us who are God's children, need to be more concerned about God's opinion than man's opinion. All of us need to be more concerned about God's approval than man's approval. All of us need to be more concerned about the day when we shall stand before God and give an account to Him than whatever our friends and neighbors and people in the world around us might say about our Christianity. A judgment that will not be influenced by human opinions. It is secondly a judgment of every sinful transgression. They will give account. They will give account. Give account. That's a term that is used in Luke 16.2 of an employee giving account to his employer. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man wasted his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. It is used in Acts chapter 19 about giving an account to civil authorities. That was following the riot of the Ephesian silversmiths, and as the town clerk was trying to call the mob back to order, he reminded them that if they didn't behave themselves, they very well might have to give an account to a higher civil authority. He says, For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. 
But it is also used, and more seriously, of those who must give account to God. Jesus said in Matthew 12:36, But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every idle word. They will give account of it in the day of judgment. And we read this in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. That, of course, is speaking about pastors, elders who have been charged with the responsibility of watching over the welfare of those who are placed within their flock, their congregation. And this admonition is recognized that they are going to give an account for God, to God for the way that they handle their responsibility. And therefore, you don't want to be opposing them, thwarting them, chafing against them, making things hard for them but rather make their oversight a joy by the way you respond to the word of God because they are going to give an account to God for you. Peter is telling us in verse 5 that the unconverted are going to give an account for the kinds of sins that he listed in verse 3. When he said, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Just a partial list, of course, of the kinds of sins that sinners love, love to plunge themselves into. But now he says they will give account. They will give account for all of these sins. They will give account for every transgression against God. In fact, not only of the sins listed, but also of the many sins that are not listed. For Peter was not trying to give a comprehensive list of all sins in verse 3. Just a sample. But the Bible makes it clear that sinners must give an account to God for every transgression, every sin, every violation of His Word. We read in Romans 2, 5, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. And listen to these solemn words in Revelation chapter 20 regarding that great day of judgment. When I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. God keeps a record of every violation of his revealed will. And God records those sins in the books of heaven 
And sinners will stand before God someday and give an account for all of these transgressions. And dear friends, that is going to be a dreadful day. Sinners are not only going to give account for all of these sins, but they are going to give account for their persecution of Christians. That's what's found in the immediate context here. In verse 4, in regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, maligning you, misrepresenting you, slandering you, saying things about you that are not true, trying to ruin your reputation, trying to make people think that you're a hypocrite, that you're a goody two-shoes, that you talk like you're trying to live for the Lord, but you don't really. And they malign you, and they make fun of you, and they persecute you, and make things hard for the people of God, but they will give account for this activity, this persecution of God's children. Do you remember the passage I read earlier in Matthew chapter 25 about that great day of judgment in which Jesus said in essence that the way that you treat the people of God is the way that you treat Christ. Which is another way of saying that whatever your estimation of Christ is, that's going to come out in the way you live. How Whether you love him or hate him is going to be shown in the way You deal with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God. If you love Christ, you'll love his people. If you serve the Lord Christ, you'll serve his people. If you hate Christ, then you will hate his people. You will make things hard for his people. And so those who persecute the people of God are going to give an account. They are going to answer for how they treated God's people, they're going to answer for their attitude toward Jesus Christ, shown in how they treat God's people. Here's what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and following. He says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those who are troubling you, you will be given rest, but they will be given no rest. And what Peter is telling us is the same thing that Christ has told us and that Paul has told us and that the Bible tells us consistently throughout, namely that sinners are every day amassing more and more sins to their sin debt. And every day they live in rebellion against Christ, they are adding to their indictment, their list of sins for which they're going to have to give an account, They are adding to their judgment, and they are going to be judged. They are going to give an account. Paul said in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. God knows every heart, and he knows 
what you know about his word, about his law. Some know more than others, but whatever you know, that's the standard that's going to be used to judge you. And your list of works is going to be laid down aside God's law, whatever level of understanding you have of God's law, and you're going to be judged. The law of God on the one hand, and your compliance with or failure to comply to God's law on the other hand. And when your record is shown to be sinful, because it is a list of multiple violations against the law of God, then there's only one possible outcome. You have amassed a great debt that you cannot pay. And therefore, you're going to pay on it for all eternity, and you'll never get to the end of paying for it. It's kind of like the life sentences that we now generally hand out in our country for murder. We're very squeamish about capital punishment, the death penalty, and so rather than putting people to death, we generally give them a life sentence, recognizing that that really isn't sufficient Punishment. It's not really a life for a life, and it's not really as severe a punishment as they deserve, but it's in essence to say you will spend the rest of your natural life in prison and pay on your debt every day that you live because you can't live long enough to pay it off. And think about that in terms of sinners who are sentenced before the judgment bar of God to be banished forever into eternal condemnation into the lake of fire to pay their debt to God, but they're not capable of ever paying it off. So for all eternity, they continue to pay and to pay and to pay and to pay on that debt. And what Peter is saying to Christians is don't cave in to the pressures and trials and mockings of the unconverted. Don't cave in. Be patient. You are on the right side. And you will be vindicated in the day of judgment, and they will be exposed in the day of judgment. Don't cave in to these pressures now, but continue trusting the Lord, following the Lord, serving the Lord, living for the Lord, leaning upon God, confessing your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, And casting yourself afresh on the mercy of Christ, continue to do that to the end of your life. Don't succumb to the pressures of the unconverted. And so it is, number one, a judgment not influenced by human opinion. It is a judgment, number two, of every sinful transgression. It is a judgment, number three, of a final judgment before the ultimate judge. They will give an account to him. To him, the the world has its judgments, both formal and informal, but they're alternative. They never get to the final verdict, do they? When criminals are brought before a human court, sometimes the court gets their verdict right, sometimes it gets it wrong, but it really doesn't matter as much as as perhaps it should, because that's only tentative anyway. If they get it wrong, you can be sure that they're still going to answer to the judge of all the earth, and he never gets it wrong. 
He never gets it wrong. And if there's a miscarriage of justice upon earth, you can be certain that it's going to be remedied in that final day because the ultimate judge knows every heart. He knows all truth. He knows everything. He knows every fact. And he is going to judge perfectly according to righteous judgment. He will never get it wrong. And it is Christ who is this judge that is spoken of. The judge is not named in verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's not named. Peter assumes that his readers will know who the judge is. And, of course, in general terms, the judge is God. But what we learn is that God has committed judgment to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is God the Son. It is God in the Son, the Redeemer of the world, who is going to be the judge in this final day of judgment. Jesus said in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And verse 27, Has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And Paul put it this way in his sermon in Athens on Mars Hill in Acts 17.31. He said, Because he, that is God, has appointed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God's going to judge every sinner in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, by the very one that he gave to be the Savior of sinners. Those who do not come to him for salvation are going to meet him as their judge. The judge of the universe. And this is the crowning glory of the Son's exaltation. Christ was greatly humiliated in the incarnation and went down, 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 all the way to death, even the death of the cross. But then God highly exalted him. He raised him from the dead. He ascended on high. He sits upon the throne of glory in heaven even now. And on that final day of judgment, he's the one who's going to be sitting upon the throne, rendering judgment upon all the universe. And that will be the crowning touch of his eternal glory. A final judgment before the ultimate judge. It is number four, we are told, a judgment that is imminent. Who is ready? They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who is ready? He's fully prepared to judge right now. He's ready to judge. That's a judgment that could begin today. This is the kind of language that we find in the Bible of imminence, often of the imminence of Christ's return. Well, please note that it's also attached to the imminence of judgment. Judgment could come at any moment. It could come today. What we know is it will come at God's appointed time, at God's appointed day. God has appointed the day in which he will judge the world, and God knows when that will be. But it could be any time. We cannot presume that it is yet a while off. Similar to what James said in James 5, 8, when he said, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
standing at the door. The picture is that he's right there, standing at the door, just waiting for the right time, waiting for the word from the Father to open the door and to step upon the scene and to begin this judgment. Shouldn't we live, therefore, with this judgment in view at all times? The only proper actions that we ever take are those that we take in the light of this day of final judgment. It is number five, a judgment from which no one can escape. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead, that's a common saying, the living and the dead. We find Peter using these words in Acts chapter 10 when he was preaching to Cornelius in his household. And he said in verse 42, And he commanded us, that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 4.1. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and kingdom. The living and the dead. In other words, whenever that judgment day arrives, everyone is going to be judged whether they have died prior to that day or whether they are living at the time that that day comes. There will be some who will be alive when the Lord returns and the judgment begins. And there will be many who have already died when that day of judgment arrives. And it makes no difference. Everyone is going to be judged, both the living and the dead. We read about that in Revelation chapter 20, how that the graves and the and the earth and the sea are going to yield up the dead which are in them. And everyone is going to be judged according to his works. And that's exactly the same thing that Peter is telling us here. He's telling us that those who are physically alive and those who are physically dead on the day that judgment arrives, they will all be judged. In other words, no one can escape this judgment. No one can find a way to avoid this judgment. It is coming and it is a judgment from which no one can escape. A judgment that sinners must face. That's a judgment for saints as well. And since Peter is emphasizing the judgment to sinners, I'll stick to that topic today. But saints need to recognize that we are going to be judged. And we need to be ready to stand before the Lord and give an account to Him as well. But our judgment is not like the judgment of the unbeliever. Thank God for that. But this judgment that sinners must face is a judgment that they cannot avoid. They cannot talk their way out of. Some people are very glib and they have found that they have a ready tongue and they've been able to use that to get them out of many a tight situation upon the earth. They have used their glib tongue to help them escape justice on many occasions. They have gotten out of the consequences of their of their misdeeds because they were able to talk their way out of it upon earth. But I can assure you, dear friend, that nobody's going to talk their way out of it in this day. And the fact of the matter is that nobody can prevail in this day of judgment who stands there on his own merit, on his own two feet, stands there 
pointing to his own record of deeds done. In that case, there can only be one verdict. Guilty is charged. The record is accurate. And the list of misdeeds is long. And the guilt, the verdict, therefore, must be guilty. That's the only possibility. And sinners on that day cannot avoid the sentence which must come, which is, depart from me, ye wicked, into everlasting fire. The condemnation of God falls upon them. Eternal separation from God and all that that means, all that is wrapped up in that concept of eternal separation from God, will face every sinner on that day. Yes, there is a judgment that sinners must face. But in verse 6, Peter reminds us that there is a way to be ready, and only one way, but there is a way, thank God. We can be ready to face that judgment, and we can escape the guilty verdict and the sentence of condemnation in that day of judgment. And he says in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And this verse turns out to be another one of Peter's difficult texts, of which we have looked at a number. And let me give you some of the common interpretations of 1 Peter 4.6. Some have linked this to their misunderstanding of chapter 3, verse 19, where we read that Christ preached to the spirits in prison. And some, as I told you then, interpret that to mean that Christ went to hell and preached to those who are in hell. In, in 319, apparently preached to the fallen angels in hell. And now, on the basis of this verse, they would build upon that concept. And some would say that this is telling us that Christ preached in hell to those who are there, perhaps those who never heard the gospel, and therefore, in the thinking, the misthinking of some, never had a chance And so Christ will go and preach the gospel to them now. But that, of course, is expanding upon the error of 319. That's not a proper understanding of that text. And it is postulating a second chance which is taught nowhere in the Word of God. In fact, is explicitly denied. It cannot mean that. Some have thought that verse 6 is talking about Christ going to hell, but not to the punishment part of hell, but to wherever the Old Testament saints may be, and that's another subject we won't get into. But basically, that Christ went to wherever the Old Testament saints are and preached the gospel to them because they, of course, being before the cross, had not had opportunity to hear the gospel. But again, that's a misunderstanding. It's, it's, it assumes that Old Testament saints uh, can't truly be saved until Christ came. And, of course, they were saved. And... They were saved the same way we are, by faith, believing the promises of God. It's true they didn't have as much knowledge as we have, but they had sufficient knowledge. And Abraham was justified by faith, we are told. And he didn't need Jesus to go somewhere and preach the gospel to him. So that can't be what this text is talking about. Well, some have postulated that verse 6 is talking about preaching the gospel not to those who are physically dead, but to those who are spiritually dead. As indeed, wherever the gospel goes forth, wherever they are 
are people who are not saved, who whose physical ears hear that message, of course the gospel is at that time being preached to the spiritually dead. But that cannot be what this text means, and I'll show you more clearly why in a moment. But a fourth understanding, and I'm convinced this is the only proper one, is that the gospel was preached to those who formerly heard and believed the gospel and are now dead. In other words, saints who have died. And Peter's saying, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are now dead. They were alive when the gospel was preached to them, but they are now dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. In short, what Peter is saying is the reason the gospel was preached was in order to make men ready for the judgment day. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And because of that coming judgment day, for this reason, the gospel was preached. Because the gospel is the remedy to prepare men and women and boys and girls to stand before God in that day of judgment. It is a remedy provided by God himself. A remedy that's in the gospel of Christ. The gospel. For this reason, the gospel was preached. A word that means good news. And you see, now it really begins to sound like good news. Against the backdrop of man's sin and guilt and condemnation, against the backdrop of the day of judgment, now men are ready to hear a word of good news. And so many times in our evangelism today, we try to persuade sinners to receive Christ and to believe the good news when they haven't really understood the bad news. Peter doesn't do it that way. He prepares men for the good news by telling them the truth, telling them the bad news, telling them about the judgment day. He's not embarrassed to talk about sin. He's not embarrassed to talk about a final day of judgment. In fact, he recognizes that he is only being true to God and to the souls of men. And this is the only way to love the souls of men is to tell them the truth as God has revealed it to Shield men from this truth, that's not loving their souls. To, to minimize this truth so that it doesn't have a harsh impact upon them, that's not loving men's souls. But to tell them the truth about this awful day of judgment so that they begin to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Then you can tell them God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ. The message of salvation is called the gospel. And the salvation, therefore, is in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only acceptable substitute for sinners. And to even use that language, of course, presupposes that we need a substitute because we could never on our own abide the day of his judgment. And therefore, the only way to come through the judgment unscathed is if someone else can take the judgment for us can take our punishment in our place and God has provided that remedy in his own son the Lord Jesus Christ the only one who could do that the only one who who is able to do that as the God man 
The only one who could do that as the sinless, perfect son of God. The only one who is perfectly righteous and kept all of God's law perfectly. Only Jesus could do that. Only he could bear our guilt. Only he could give us a satisfactory righteousness. But he can and he did. He is the all-sufficient Savior. He is the one that God accepts. And if you by faith are in him, then God accepts you too. As righteous, just as righteous as Jesus Christ. A remedy provided by God and a remedy proclaimed by man. This gospel was preached, we read. Was preached, passive. And Peter doesn't name the messengers, but they are obviously implied. The gospel was preached by messengers, unnamed, but we know who they are. We don't know specifically which ones preached the gospel to Peter's readers, but we know that there were Christians who preached the gospel to them. And they believed it. And that made them ready for the day of judgment. And God continues to raise up proclaimers of the gospel throughout all the world in every generation. And they proclaim the good news of the gospel. And when men believe it, they are made ready for the day of judgment. The gospel was preached, or more literally, it was evangelized. It's an entirely different word than used in 1 Peter 3.19. There, you remember that Jesus went to preach to the spirits in prison. He went to make an announcement, keruxo, a public announcement as a herald. has nothing to do with the gospel at all. He was preaching victory. He was preaching their defeat. That's, the, that's what he was preaching unto them. Here, however, there can be no question that the content of the message is the gospel because the very word that is used includes that. In fact, really the emphasis here is upon the content of the message preached. It is the gospel that was preached that made men ready for this judgment day. To evangelize is to preach the gospel. To evangelize is to explain the person and work of Christ. That's what it means to evangelize. And all throughout the Bible, there's great emphasis upon verbal communication. God obviously is not opposed to written communication. After all, Peter is writing a letter, words on paper, and sending it to these Christians. And the Spirit of God compiles these books in a book we call the Bible, and we read that Bible. God is not in any way uh, diminishing the importance and the impact of the written word, but you'll find throughout the Scripture that there is attached a special power to the proclaimed word, to verbal communication. We see it here again. The gospel, not which you read about in the Bible, but the gospel which was preached to you. It was proclaimed to you. The Spirit uses that in a special way upon the hearts and lives of sinners. This gospel, which is a remedy that is effective for salvation, was preached also to those who are dead. To those who are dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead. And what does that mean? Well, I would submit to you that it means exactly the same thing that it meant in verse 5. And what did it mean there? The living and the dead. It meant those who are physically dead. 
And there's the closest possible connection between these verses. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for this reason. There's a a very close connection here grammatically. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead. In addition to being preached to those who are now living, it was previously also preached to those who are now dead. That they might be judged, we read, according to men in the flesh. And that, I think, is referring to the judgment, which is death. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. And our physical death is a judgment upon sin. That's why there is death, because of sin. And that it's saying the gospel is preached to those who are now dead. The gospel is preached to those who are subject to death. The gospel is preached to those who have experienced the judgment of death, which comes upon all the sons of Adam. But though they die physically, have already died physically, nevertheless you can be sure that those who believe the gospel, they live. Language like Christ gave us on more than one occasion. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's what Peter is saying. For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, that is, the judgment of death which comes to all human beings, all who live in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. There is eternal life for those who believe the gospel. This gospel is preached to enable men to live forever, even if they do die, which they do. What Peter is saying is that the death of believers does not undermine the gospel When Jesus said, whosoever believeth in me shall never die, he didn't mean shall never die physically. He meant shall not ultimately die. But this, I think, is probably spoken in the background of some of this criticism, some of this this, uh, persecution, some of this speaking evil of you that's referred to in verse 4. And the critics of the Christians probably said things like this. What good is your faith? You said that those who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. And look, how many of you Christians have already died? You've died just like we die. There's no difference. You died, went in the grave. We die, go in the grave. Why should we believe the message of the gospel that you're preaching to us? You claim to receive new life, divine life. Where is it? We don't see it. The skeptics never do, do they? But what Peter is saying is that fails to take into account the day of judgment. The Christian dead have experienced a judgment, the judgment of death, which comes upon all because of our sin in Adam. And the Christian dead may be harshly judged by men, both when they were living and when they died, with unkind comments and taunts like those I just suggested. But God says that they have eternal life. God says whoever believed the gospel that was proclaimed, they have eternal life. That's what God says no matter what 
man says. For the gospel was not given to save us from physical death, except at the second coming of Christ, but to save us from what is far worse, namely spiritual death. The wages of sin is death applies at the first level to everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That applies to believers in Jesus Christ alone. All experience the sting of death if we live long enough. But believers in the gospel experience eternal life that comes only through Jesus Christ. In other words, to unbelievers, physical death means death, death, and death. To believers, physical death means death, life, and life. What do you mean? When the unbeliever dies physically, what happens? He goes out into a place of imprisonment, a place of of judgment apart from God. And there he is experiencing death, waiting the judgment day when hell will yield up the dead that are in them and he will stand before the judge of all the earth and he will be judged out of all of those things which are written in the books and then he shall hear the verdict, you are guilty, and then he shall hear the pronouncement of his eternal death, his final death, his second death. So physical death for the unbeliever means death, death, death. For the believer, physical death means death, life, and life. When the believer dies physically, what happens? He's immediately with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He's already experiencing that divine life which was secured for him by Christ and was embraced by him in the gospel. And then he awaits that day when he shall stand before the judge of all the universe and because he will have an advocate in that day who will plead his case and who will show the judge his wounds and will assure God the Father that he has died for this one and then he will here enter into everlasting life. Come, enjoy the kingdom which has been purchased for you and has been designated for you from the beginning of the earth. Come and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. And so he will enter into the final stage of eternal life. For the unbeliever, physical death means death, life, and life. And all of this is to remind us that the purpose of evangelism is to prepare people for the day of judgment. And that's why we need to be busy. And talking to people about their soul's need, their soul's condition, whether they are desirous of hearing us and whether they're not. Do you know that every man has a sense of his unrighteousness before God, whether he admits it or not? Let me, let me read these words from Romans 1.32. Paul says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God. He's talking about those who have rejected the truth of God in the most uh, 
ultimate way, humanly speaking. But he wraps it up by saying of these very people who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They know the righteous judgments of God. They know that what they are doing is deserving of death. Now they know that, but they're... Their knowledge needs to be awakened. And as we proclaim the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit many times uses that to awaken their conscience. And their heart within confirms what they are hearing from without. And when the Holy Spirit takes those things and and does a work of regeneration in their soul, they will believe the gospel and be saved. And we have a responsibility and a privilege to proclaim the gospel and to witness the gospel and to prepare people for the day of judgment. And let us remember that the primary focus of our evangelism is the contents of the message. Evangelism is not constructed or understood in terms of results necessarily. That's in God's hands. We haven't evangelized when we have obtained a decision. We have evangelized when we have made the gospel clear. It's the content of the gospel. Explaining the person and work of Christ. Explaining the necessity of his work. Why it was necessary for him to come and to die. Man's sinful condition. His pending day of judgment. His accountability before the God of the universe. His violation of God's holy laws. The bad news that shows him his danger And then the good news of the wonderful gospel of grace that's found in Jesus Christ, which, if believed, will will ready every sinner who believes it for that judgment day. That's our privilege, to proclaim that. There's a great day coming. A great day coming. A great day coming by and by, when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? Shall we pray? O Lord, we acknowledge that your word is true. We know that there is a day of judgment coming. We know that righteousness must be done, that justice must be carried out. We live in a world of injustice, and we know that the day is coming when all that is wrong will be revealed and judged. And we know that there's a day coming when those who have refused the mercies of God in Jesus Christ must give an account of their sins and will have no remedy in that day. O Lord, cause the seriousness of this day to weigh heavily upon the hearts of all who are outside of Christ who are hearing this message today. And may that cause them to seek a Savior. O Lord, may they consider the day of judgment until they know they are ready for it. O Lord, may they listen to your word until they are sure that they have believed the gospel. O Lord, may they repent of their sins again and again until they know that they have been forgiven. May they cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ until they know they have been received. 
And Lord, may all of us be busy telling others the good news of a Savior who prepares men for that day of judgment. As we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.